welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good morning. Welcome along. We're so thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, for those of you who are perhaps are visiting or maybe if you've been away, we have been doing a study in the morning services on the book of Isaiah. Um, this morning we're going to click back into more of a chronological order of our, in terms of our study because in the weeks leading up to this week, uh, I've, I've looked at the prologue of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, and then we had um, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, so to kind of fit with those two um, key elements of, of our Christian calendar, I flipped right across into chapters 42 through um, 53, and we looked at the servant songs. What I want to do now is go back and pick up one of probably the best-known chapters in the book of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 6. So I want to read the chapter to you. It's not a long chapter, but if you could uh, follow along with me or um, just listen, it starts like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants. The houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. <clears throat> but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as the terebinth tree, or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Now this is a seminal passage in both the book of Isaiah in particular, and pretty much in the scriptures as a whole. It records Isaiah's call. What I, what I want to do first is start with a question that scholars actually grapple with uh, regarding Isaiah chapter 6. They ask the question, is this Isaiah's initial call to the prophetic ministry, or is this a subsequent and secondary call? Was Isaiah already a prophet uh, and a prophetic individual, as perhaps is evidenced by the five chapters leading up to this one? 
so that the experience of chapter 6 actually is just an extension of an already established ministry, or is this the beginning of his ministry? If, if it's the first one, if it's you know, an extension of ministry, then this comment from the, a scholar kind of reflects that view. He says, this vision takes a parochial scribe and turns him into a worldwide prophet of God. From this crucial point in Isaiah's ministry, he moves out in ever-widening circles. Chapter 1 to 5 were limited to Judah. Chapter 7 and 12 encompass the northern kingdom. 13 to 23 touch on the great nation of Isaiah's time. And chapters 24 following touch the whole world. So that idea is that this call in chapter 6 is a secondary call. Isaiah is already an established prophetic ministry. And there is some merit to that approach. However, most scholars seem to think that chapters 1 through 5 are actually words that Isaiah has spoken subsequent to the call, but they're placed there as a prologue to kind of introduce us to the major themes and motifs of Isaiah's ministry, largely the ideas of judgment and hope, hope and judgment. So that's the approach that, that I have taken. Um, I'm suggesting that this is the initial call. In some respects, the answer to the question doesn't change a whole lot. It might be more a point of academic interest. The chapter starts with Isaiah recording the death of a king in the year that Uzziah died. No other prophet actually dates his prof prophetic events by the death of a king. Isaiah does it twice, here in chapter 6 and then again in chapters 14, verse 28, where he says, in the year that Ahaz died. So obviously in Isaiah's mind, the death of this king, in, in the first instance Uzziah, was obviously a significant event. And the question you want to ask is, well, why? Now the year in question is thought to be 740 BC. This king, Isaiah, had had a long and mostly very prosperous reign. He'd been the king of Judah for 52 years. Arguably, he was Israel or Judah's best king since Solomon. He was an efficient administrator. He was an able military leader. He was also, for the most part, a godly man that loved and served Yahweh. So what I did in my study is I went back and kind of looked at a little bit of the background of this man's life uh, by looking at other relevant passages. 2 Chronicles 26, 4 and 5 says of Uzziah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord God, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So he had mostly a long, prosperous reign. Some of you will know the story. It changed at the end of his life, tragically. Verse 15 and 16 says, So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which wasn't his prerogative. Okay, that was the prerogative of the priests. The kings weren't supposed to do that. He's lifted up in pride and decides that he will. Verse 21 is the result. He's smitten with leprosy, and King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. So this man, who for many years was a good, able, godly king, 
ends his last days in alienation and separation under divine displeasure and discipline. As a leper, of course, he's unclean. And in a manner of speaking, he was a prophetic symbol of the whole of the nation at that time. Leprous and unclean. And we've seen that in the build-up to chapter 6, from chapters 1 through 5. It's a pretty sad situation. Now, his death, nonetheless, would have created a good deal of angst and insecurity and concern among the people of Judah. In the north, Assyria is beginning to reassert itself after a period of internal weakness. A king, Tiglath-Pileser III, had taken the throne. He was strong, he was aggressive, and he was posing a very real threat to Israel, Syria, and in the south, Judah. And the man who for five decades had symbolized Judah's national order and stability has now passed from the scene. He has died leaving an authority vacuum and a vacant throne. What is going to happen? There were, there were really good reasons for the people's anxiety and insecurity. You know what? Some of you may be living in a year that, in the light of what I'm saying, you might describe as the year Uzziah died. Because things that you've counted on, things that brought you stability and security have been shaken or possibly even removed. Your health, your spouse, your job, your children's well-being. As a result of those incredibly angst-producing situations and circumstances, you face real insecurity. What will happen? What are we going to do? The questions that you and I face in those situations are exactly the same ones that the, king of, that the people of Judah face. Where do we look? To whom do we look in these times of testing and anxiety? Now, in a popular culture, which claims to be the fount of all wisdom, at least in good times, does not have a clue when life turns to custard. You know, I was reading and researching for this, and one popular writer's solution for anxiety-producing circumstances is to put a rubber band around your wrist. And when the concern regarding that situation occurs, you flick it so that it mildly stings your wrist. Then you breathe deeply and relax while visualizing yourself in some peaceful place. I kid you not. Assyria is coming. Flick your rubber band, breathe deeply, and imagine yourself somewhere else. The obvious result is when the Assyrians do break down your walls, you'll have a wonderful breathing routine and a mildly irritated wrist. You know, for those of you who face life-threatening angst or have an anxiety disorder, such nonsense is trite at best and demeaning insulting and sickening at worst. Where do you turn in the midst of these incredibly difficult situations? Now, I want you to notice where Isaiah went. Isaiah has this vision in the temple, in the gathering of God's people. He was among God's people. So many people face trouble, and in the midst of the trouble, for all kinds of reasons, pull away. I've watched it over the years, 40 years of ministry. I've watched people do this again and again and again. Face anxiety, pull away. 
removed themselves from fellowship, from gathering with God's people. Listen, Isaiah didn't do that. And here on a day that probably started off and seemed like many other days, just another day, just another gathering, God opened up the heavens and reveals himself to the prophet. By the way, the psalmist Asaph also has exactly the same experience in one of his deeply difficult times. His faith was almost derailed over the issue of the wicked prospering while the godly seemed to suffer inordinately. And he doesn't seem to be able to get his head around it until verse 17 of that psalm where he says, I entered the sanctuary of God and then I saw the whole picture. Pulling yourself away from the people of God, from the place where God's people gathers, is not a recipe for healing your anxiety. The Bible says, stay in that place. And it's with all the saints that you begin to understand something of the depth, the, the, the height, the breadth, the width of God's love. It's with all the saints. It's not a revelation that is afforded people off on their own. So Isaiah is in the midst of his people, of God's people. And I want to just say to you, don't let the hard times pull you away from God's people. Stay attached. And it's in this pivotal moment that God shows Isaiah something beyond a dead king and a vacant throne. The heavens are open and he sees another king and another throne. A king that will never die and a throne that will never become vacant. It's interesting that when John in the book of Revelation sees the heavens open, the very first thing that he comments on is, I saw a throne set in heaven. And that idea of the throne is one of the central motifs of the book of Revelation. It occurs 40 times in 22 chapters. And it's a throne that's set. It's fixed. It's immovable. It clearly in contrast with the tottering thrones of this earthly realm. Daniel, another seer, who has a vision of the heavenly realm, also says the same. He, in chapter 7, verse 9, saw the throne. And throughout the book, repeatedly he says, listen, the most high rules in the affairs of men. There's a throne set. And in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of your angst, in the midst of your concern, beyond the vacant thrones and dead kings of this world, there is a king and there is a throne that's set. Obviously, for Daniel, for John, for Isaiah, the truth of God's fixed kingly rule didn't mean that they never ever faced any anxious circumstances. Clearly they did, and just as clearly we will too. It's the nature of life. Remember Job saying, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's just, it's life. The crucial issue is not avoiding those situations because you can't. The crucial issue is to whom do you look in those crucial times? And this is the key message of the subsequent chapters, by the way, chapters 7 through 9. But let me give you a very quick breakdown of this chapter, and uh, we'll work our way through it. We're not going to get all through it today, okay? Verses 1 to 4, we have a holy God. Verses 5 to 7, we have a humbled servant. And verses 8 through 13, we have a hard message, all right? I think we'll probably get as far as verse 7 today if we do well. Firstly, a holy God. So the first thing Isaiah sees is the throne, and he hears the attending angelic creatures calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. In, in our English language, the English language structure allows us to s express a superlative by saying something like good, 
better, best. The Hebrew language doesn't have that kind of structure. Magnitude is achieved by doubling the word, the word use. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 10, the English, valley, the English translation reads, the valley was full of pits. In the Hebrew, it just simply says, pits, pits. And it's the, multi, it's the, rep, the repetition of the word that gives that sense of something building. The same in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 15. The, Hebrew, the English reads, pure gold. In the Hebrew, it says, gold, gold. Here, the word is tripled. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in Scripture that this feature occurs. Occurs, and this is clearly a category beyond a category. This is not just holy, holy. This is, he's breaking all the laws of the language to actually try and get this superlative idea across to us. Most of us, when we think of holy, we think of something that's without sin. And of course, it includes that idea. But to be holy, actually, the idea is to be completely different from anything that's everyday or common. It's to be completely otherwise. There is a terrifying otherwiseness, if I can say that, in God's presence. He is searingly transcendent, absolutely, utterly true and upright. A German scholar by the name of Rudolf Otto once wrote a book entitled The Idea of the Holy, and in it he said that people who encounter God are torn by the Im by the ambivalent forces of, of fascination on one hand and absolute fear on the other. We are both drawn and repelled at the same time. That's what happens to Isaiah. And this encounter so imprints itself on Isaiah that for the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry, his favorite most used description to describe Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. It occurs 30 times in the Old Testament, 25 times in the book of Isaiah, a couple of times in Jeremiah, three times in Psalm, but overwhelmingly it's Isaiah's description of Yahweh. So firstly, Isaiah sees the Lord. And by the way, just out of interest, you might like to follow this through. In John chapter 12, verse 41, John is talking about this incident and, and he says, Isaiah sees Jesus, okay? An, an interesting comment on the pre-incarnate Son of God. John says, what Isaiah saw was the Lord. So he firstly sees a holy God. The second thing he sees so touches him that he ends up a deeply humbled servant. It's interesting to note that throughout the Scripture, when God comes to people and calls them, he does it in such different and very personal ways. He deals with people personally. He doesn't produce or call chocolate soldiers, you know, cookie cutter, sort of, you, 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 you in exactly the same way. Isaiah's call is so different from his compatriot, his colleague, Jeremiah. The way, the way God deals with Jeremiah is actually quite tender. Jeremiah feels himself totally disqualified for any kind of call. Like, like many of the prophets that God called, he comes from humble origins and he has a very low view of himself. And so when God fingers him, shoulder taps him, he says, I can't speak, I'm only a child. 
And Jeremiah 1.9 says, God reaches out, touches his mouth, and said, look, I've just put my words in your mouth, hand-delivered. And, and there seems to be such a tenderness in that approach. Now, I'm, I might be guilty in surmising this. I'm probably arguing a little bit from silence. But I suspect that Isaiah might well have been at the opposite end of the spectrum from Jeremiah. And he had very good reasons to feel quite differently from the humbled Jeremiah. Isaiah was a member of the royal family. He was King Uzziah's cousin. He had been raised in the environment of the palace. He was a member of the cultural elite. He was educated. He was gifted. He was connected. Some people, bless them, just seem to have it all. Like Joseph, muscular, good-looking, smart, and spiritual. Some people are like that. They come from the right family. They attend the right schools, go to the right universities. They have the right connections. They are smarter, more beautiful, better dressed, and absolutely unforgivable. They are thinner than the rest of us. We look at them and say they would, make, they would make great Christians. They look at themselves and say we would make great Christians. Or perhaps they would say, you know, God would really benefit from having me on his team. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I suspect Isaiah would have been a very unusual individual if he hadn't been shaped somewhat by his very privileged position and upbringing. And God reveals himself to Isaiah in such an exalted and transcendent manner that, that I suspect, <coughs> excuse me, I suspect his relatively privileged position didn't readily spring to his mind. He probably just got a nosebleed looking up. He was humbled beyond measure. To Jeremiah, God says, stop trembling. To Isaiah, God says, start trembling. He knows how to deal with us individually. Again, I have no way of surmising this. I've read the stories, but I can't remember the details. But I suspect that when God called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that wonderful Welsh preacher, he was a very successful Harley Street physician, a physician, in fact, to the royal family. I wonder that when God called him into the ministry, he may well have used quite different words than when he called Smith Wigglesworth, who was an illiterate plumber. He knows how to speak to us. So he speaks to Isaiah, gives him such a sense of who he is in terms of his exalted sovereign authority over the earth that Isaiah is totally humbled and he says, woe is me for I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now I'm sure we are all familiar with the reality that when we do encounter God's presence, our own sinfulness is made visible to us in a new and humbling way. It's true that that often happens. It happens with Job in the Old Testament, with Peter in the New Testament. But what I'd like to do this morning is look at this idea from just a slightly different angle. Why is it that in this passage, Isaiah says, my lips are unclean? Why didn't he say, my heart is unclean? Why didn't he say, my mind is unclean? Why wouldn't he have said, my hands are unclean? Why the lips? Well, Isaiah is a prophet, or he's about to be appointed one. And to a prophet, the lips are what a dancer, what a legs are to a dancer, what fingers are to a concert pianist, what the arm is to a, a cricket fast bowler. It's their strength. It's their pride and their joy. And in this encounter with God's holiness, God actually doesn't highlight so much Isaiah's weakness, but those things that he would have classed as his strengths. 
and he ends up broken and repentant about the things that before this encounter, he would have possibly said were my greatest assets. Oftentimes, our strengths become the glue that actually holds our identity together. They become the integrating factor of your personality, the thing that makes you feel okay about who you are, the thing that provides the basis for your self-image. You know, someone says, well, I may not be smart, but I'm good looking. Someone says, well, I may not be good looking, but I'm smart. And someone else says, well, I may not be good looking or smart, but I'm rich. I'm a good singer. I'm a good athlete. I'm an astute business person. I'm a good preacher. I've got good kids, therefore I must be, ipso facto, a good parent. I've got a faithful spouse, so I must be a good husband or wife. This kind of encounter with God vaporizes that kind of glue. And he touches not so much our brokenness, but our supposed strengths. Because for many of us, the thing that stops us being all that God wants us to be is not even so much our weaknesses, but our strengths. You know, in the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, it was the Pharisee's moral rectitude, the thing that he thought was his strength, that blocked him from what God wanted to do in his life, from God's favor. He says, I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray. I, I, I've got some strengths. And they were the very thing that stopped him from being all that God wanted him to be. And in this Encounter, God puts his finger on the lips, on our supposed strengths, and just vaporizes them. Some of you might be thinking, well, I didn't expect that. I I, I thought God was interested in my self-esteem. I've heard from other preachers that a poor self-image is the cause of a lot of my sin and my problems. You know, a gospel, Don, that you're proposing like that sounds kind of, to me, kind of unhealthy. It sounds a bit like psychological suicide. Well, listen... Tongue in cheek, I can assure you that God doesn't want you to commit psychological suicide. He wants the pleasure of killing you himself. (laughs) Thankfully, he's also the God of resurrection. You know what? I don't think God has too much interest in self-esteem as it is popularly defined. You know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. The gospel starts with a terrible revelation that actually we are not okay. But, but, But you say, well, but he loves us, doesn't he? Yes, he does. But I want to tell you, you'll never fully touch his love unless you go through his holiness because his love is a holy love. And that holy love will undo you before it recreates you. He may touch your strengths with a holy coal and give them back to you, but he may not. You know, our gifts don't impress him anywhere near as much as they may impress us or they may impress others. And he's much more concerned that your identity rests on and is secured by his love and his grace, not your strengths. It can't be your strengths that provide that glue, that integrating factor for your personality, because those things can be lost in a moment. A stroke can make our lips silent, legs can break, tendons can be torn so that dance is no longer possible. Fingers can become arthritic so that we can't play play the piano. Then who are we when those things happen? When the glue, when the integrating factor of your life is his love and grace, then nothing and no one can take that from you. 
You are loved, accepted, adopted, and graced. And no matter what happens, that can never be taken from you. Without God's dealing in our lives, your strengths may end up your greatest liability. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you will never fully be healed by the grace of God. God never shows you your brokenness, by the way, except to offer you healing through his grace. The devil does that. He, he, he will show you your brokenness, and his aim is simply to condemn you. God doesn't ro- rub your nose in your, either your failures or your supposed strengths. He brings a coal from his altar to cleanse and to heal. And of course, you're aware, I'm sure, that the altar is the place where sin is atoned for, the place where blood is shed, and it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. He is the one who is the source of healing and cleansing. Now, this encounter that Isaiah has with God's holiness completely liberates Isaiah because God goes on to say, almost sort of speaking in Trinitarian form and allowing Isaiah to listen in, who who will we send? Who will go for us? It's as if God is saying, I've got a job for a prophet. And the end of the chapter outlines what this job will look like. He says, nobody will listen to you. Everybody will resist you. You will be seen, at least in your lifetime, as a professional failure. Any takers. And Isaiah's hand goes straight up. Send me. I'll go. Send me. He is no longer afraid of what others might say to him. The glue of his identity will not be vaporized by their critique. It's as if he's saying, if God loves me in this manner, of whom should I be afraid? My identity is not dependent on my professional reputation, on my skill, on my status, on my wealth, on my looks. God has secured me. And I tell you, Isaiah is profoundly, psychologically reorientated by this encounter encounter with God's holiness. He is humbled. So we have a holy God, a humble servant, and then he is given an incredibly hard message. I just want to say this, and I'm going to ask the musicians to come, because I'm, I'm not going to go into this hard message. All I want to say is that God says, I want you to go out and preach, And I want you to make people's hearts harder. I want you to make their eyes blinder. I want you to make their ears deafer. And you're you're thinking, what? Why would a God of love actually want and desire an unhealed people? You know, what kind of God are we dealing with here? But as we'll unpack next week, what you see is that God is actually just giving to these people more of what they have already chosen. And it's the same deal that you see back in Exodus where, you know, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And a lot of people have stumbled over that saying, why would God do that? Why why wouldn't God soften Pharaoh's heart? But if you look at that passage, before God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God simply ratifies Pharaoh's choice. Whatever it is that you choose, God will give you more of. And the issue with this hard message, as it will unpack next week, is an issue of idolatry. People have chosen idols. And at the end of the day, you resemble what you revere. And if you know Psalm 115, it says, their idols are deaf, their idols are dumb, their idols can't perceive anything. And God says, that's what you want, that's what you have. 
The issue of idolatry, by the way, is not some kind of molten image on a mantelpiece. For our Western world, it has things... It has to do with things like sex and power and wealth and consumerism and a dozen and one other things. Idolatry is not an ancient issue. It's a present issue. It's a human issue. And it's the absolute seminal part of the book of Isaiah. The people, if they are ever going to move from the actual community to being the ideal community, they have to grapple with the disordered loves of their heart. And if we're ever going to be God's people in our world, we have to grapple and allow God to deal profoundly, deeply, and sometimes violently with the disordered loves of our heart, with the passions of our heart. So, well, Don, I, 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 don't, I don't have an idol in my heart. Well, you know what? Jesus said, and I paraphrase, you show me your bank statement, and I will show you your object of worship. You say, Don, I don't remember Jesus saying anything like that. Well, as I say, it was a paraphrase. (laughs) He said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be. Let me see your bank statement. Let me see where your time, your energy, your money, your emotional resources go, and I'll tell you something about the object of your worship. And when you bring it down to that level, sometimes our hearts kind of quiver inside, and we think, oh, my goodness. Maybe that thing that my wife says is an obsession and I say, no, it's not, really is, or vice versa. This is a crucial issue. If we are ever going to move from the actual to the ideal, we have to allow the Spirit of God to grapple with the idols of our heart, with the disordered loves of our heart. And that's what's transpiring here with Isaiah. And it will transpire with you and me if we pursue God with all our hearts, which I heartily recommend we do. Let's stand, shall we? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.